I'd say the other part of the marketplace that people are going to pay more attention to both today because of the conflict, but also as they think retrospectively when this conflict is behind us, is the way that big data and big data analytics is being used and how that big data and big data analytics is being not just supplemented, but guided by information we're getting from space. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hey there, podcasters. This month, The Downlink is focusing on Russia's war in Ukraine. We've had just shy of a year to watch, listen, read, and consider the conflict, as well as work through the various effects of the war on space, ground-level effects, and how these effects have started a new chapter of modern warfare. This episode is focusing on the effects this war has had on space and money, like space business, finance, space investors, and not just venture capitalists either, and the space economy writ large, right? Like, how could it not? To better understand the war and its effects on space and money, we've got Chris Quilty of Quilty Analytics, George Pullen from Milky Way Economy, and Rich Smith of The Motley Fool. But first, I want to bring your attention to two strategically important events that didn't make the news cycle like China's spy balloon, but that took place this week and took many in the space community by surprise. First, the commander of Southern Command, Army General Laura Richardson, convened the space Conference of the Americas with 11 Western Hemisphere countries. Precious little is known about the event or its possible outcomes. The media was not invited. And the only reason we know about it is because of a tweet out of SOCOM. I'm just going to call it like I see it. This is no way to do public affairs. Second, the two national security advisors representing the United States and India convened the inaugural meeting of the U.S.-India Initiative on Critical and Emerging Technology in Washington, D.C. on Monday. According to a State Department press release and a White House fact sheet, it was a two-day affair that was small but packed a punch for space. The list of attendees was limited to a who's who of the two countries' space foreign affairs and defense leadership. And what I said about SOCOM goes double for the White House and the DOS. You'd think, and you'd be wrong, that because this is an inaugural meeting of such a strategically important bilateral space initiative with such high-level attendees present to kick it off, would have been cause for just a bit more public celebration than a fact sheet and a press release issued after the fact. Just saying, folks, no bueno. Now, stepping off my soapbox, here's my conversation with Chris, George, and Rich about how Russia's war in Ukraine has affected space and money. Hi, Chris and George, and welcome to Rich. Thanks, Laura. Hi, Laura. Good to be back. Before we dive into what's happening in the space economy, let's do a quick round of introductions, starting with the downlink regulars. Chris, why don't you start and please let us know where you are. Uh, thanks. I am in St. Petersburg, Florida, and you're not. 
Um, my background, uh, I spent 20 years in financial services with Raymond James, where I was a, a sell-side analyst doing you know, buy-sell calls on stocks. Uh, left Raymond James in 2016 to hang my own shingle, and I have a, a small group of really smart people I work with that do uh, research, investment banking, and strategic advisory work focused exclusively on the satellite and space industry. And George? Thanks for having me back, Laura. Uh, my name is George Pullen. I am the Chief Space Economist of Milkway Economy. We are a fifth industrial revolution think tank. We also invest in some small space companies and startups that we believe in. So we put our money where our mouth and economics are. Uh, today, I'm calling in from D.C., although sometimes I have been known to dial in from Maine, Florida, Texas, or New Mexico. But today is D.C., and uh, it's happy to join you again. And last but not least, I'd love to extend a warm welcome to you, Rich. Take a moment and introduce yourself, what you do, and why you focus on, quote, things that go boom, unquote. Rich? Thanks, Laura. Uh, I'm calling in from Indianapolis, or, or just north of. I am an investor and a writer for The Motley Fool, which gives uh, personal finance and investing advice. And in a former life, I was a lawyer practicing in Russia and Ukraine. And you focus on things that go boom. Why? Oh, oh, sorry. Uh, things that bo get boom, they, they catch my attention. I think they, I hope that they interest my readers. It's just where I gravitate. Thanks, Rich. Okay, this is kind of like a warm-up round, but as this month marks a year since Russia invaded Ukraine, and it's certainly affected the capital markets and possibly how investors approach their portfolios, but the space sector is special. At least, I think we all like to think so. So specifically, what has been the number one effect of Russia's war in Ukraine that's been produced in the space sector or its economy? Or lacking that, has anything surprised you? Chris, you kick this off. Yeah, well, I'll leave the the maybe the macroeconomic effects to, to George and focus on, you know, just the space industry. And, you know, I'd say uh, from an investor perception, uh, this has probably been the best thing that that's happened like since the Apollo program in terms of awareness of the importance of space you know, not only to the economy and the way we live, but uh, certainly the war fighting aspect of it. You know, even my kids who don't uh, care what I do um, suddenly are like, hey, look at these cool satellite imagery, you know, we're seeing of, of tanks and things. So uh, for uh, the general public, they've seen the way that that space has an active role in this, uh, this sort of environment. Uh, Starlink, right? I mean, a lot of investors asking questions about whether SpaceX and Starlink make sense and, you know, huge PR boon for them in terms of doing something that, you know, even the, the U.S. military and traditional SATCOM providers weren't able to do, which is to provide on-the-demand connectivity that's been, you know, it's been proven pivotal in this, uh, this current conflict. And George, what's, what do you think from your perspective? Yeah, I'm going to take that a little bit in a little bit of a different direction. So if, if we frame it up to, on a longer period of time, we can think of the Vietnam War as the first TV war. And I'm doing quotes there that no one can see because this is audio. And then if we think about the Gulf War, that was the first real-time war where we were getting updates on a regular basis. We saw the birth of 24-7 news. But Ukraine has been the first satellite imagery coverage of a war by media. And I think 
going from a TV war to a real-time TV war to a satellite imagery TV war makes a big difference. I do think it's changed our perceptions of how satellites are ubiquitous and touch us in every part of our daily life and every part of the daily life of those involved with the conflict, like what's happening over there in Ukraine right now. Um, I think, too, the other part of the power that everyone has seen with a commercial entity able to provide EO, Earth observation, data, which has strategic significance, it's really started to bring up the question of both what does it mean when you have space assets that are dual use? And what does it mean when one provider has so much power? And sometimes when we have that word in economics, we call it a monopoly. So those are two other things that have definitely come to the to the forefront with the conflict. And Rich, what do you think? Um, looking at it from an individual investor's perspective, the, the thing that really jumps out at me is how little things have changed over the course of nearly a year of war, or, or rather changed for the better. Uh, we saw so many companies come public through SPAC transactions in, in 2021, especially in the space sector. And I would say a good half of them have lost 70, 80, 90% of their value um, over the course of this war, which is, as George is saying, really, really caught the attention of people. It hasn't saved the stock prices. And Rich, as you're an investor, you know, what lessons do you think investors or companies have or should have learned from this conflict? The biggest lesson, or, or rather a reminder, I, I don't think anyone should have forgotten this, valuation matters. Uh, just because stocks are, are popular, just because their revenues are growing, in some cases, fantastically well, if they're not making a profit, uh, the stocks are in the long term not going to do well. And Chris, come on, you've got a thought here. Yeah, so I guess I agree in aggregate with uh, George, though I wouldn't say necessarily that uh, you know the reaction of stocks that we've seen in the past year, I think are probably due to larger cyclical issues. You know, within the space industry, um, you know you you've seen a little bit of sorting of the wheat of the chaff. You've seen SPACs as an investment class as a whole, uh, regardless of whether they performed or not, you know, just get treated all one in the same. Uh, and you've seen some spectacular successes, uh, you know, think of Maxar and, and uh, you know, 100% plus takeout of, of that name. And let's be honest, I mean, that valuation is in large part attributed to the role that they have played in supporting the conflict and the thought that that's going to be a much longer term demand cycle uh, that support can support those types of valuations. And, and Chris, in your opinion, you know, what verticals in the space sector have shined or grown, you know, how or why, or perhaps shrunk because of the war? Uh, yeah, I think George said it, Earth observation uh, as a technology class. And for those of you who aren't familiar, we used to call it remote sensing in the old days, but there's a number of different technologies from optical, you know, pictures, that's the stuff we're familiar with to synthetic aperture radar or radar satellites, uh, radio frequency mapping, hyperspectral thermal infrared. I mean, there's a lot of different sensors you can put on satellites. Um, you know, SAR, which is a newer technology, really those hadn't become commercially available until a couple of years ago. And I think there were a lot of questions around, you know, the business case, uh, you know, the, the cost of the constellation, is this an attractive business? Well, my goodness, uh, those companies are seeing massive demand, you know, for their capability. 
Um, I'd also note, you know, is another technology that, uh, again, you know, has really seen some uptake in part because of what's happening here is the optical crosslinks, uh, the laser communication terminals that are, are required for all these low Earth orbit satellites. Uh, you know, that has become, you know, basically a standard for uh, what the U.S. Uh, SDA is building for their constellation and is bleeding down across every other constellation that's looking to adopt this technology. Uh, and, you know, one of the big benefits is you can move a lot of da data in space without ground infrastructure. And there are certain parts of the world where, you know, they're now a no-go for where you can put ground infrastructure. If I could jump into that data theme a little bit. I'd say the other part of the marketplace that people are going to pay more attention to both today because of the conflict, but also as they think retrospectively when this conflict is behind us, is the way that big data and big data analytics is being used and how that big data and big data analytics is being not just supplemented, but guided by information we're getting from space. So when we used to talk to people about how the projections for active satellites in LEO might go from 5,000 to 100,000 or more over the next decade, they look at you and blink and say, well, why do I care? Well, not only is that 20 times more satellites in space, but that also means that there's 20 times more potential of information to be gathered. And that information being gathered is going to be processed. That raw data is going to be processed and used into insights, which right now are being used for insights for the war effort, but what we later be used for insights for business, for supply chain, and for other things that we can't even think of yet. So I think that's where people will start to look if they're not looking already. Just for a term for everybody to think about, and that's decision advantage. When you have all these different data points that are coming in, and it has been written about most recently in The Hill, in fact, and I'm hoping to have them on the show later, but where they argue that a lot of the reason why Ukraine is doing so well is because they have all this data coming in, that it is coming in at broadband speeds. And um, it has given them a decision advantage that, you know, numbers of boots on the ground and uh, the number of weapons don't play as critical a role because of the ability to see and make good decisions. Simple as that. Um, but what about cybersecurity, guys? I mean, Viasat did get bonked, you know, right before this war kicked off, is that not also doing well? Or is it, is it just sort of, you know, same as same as? I think it's in a position uh, to do well. Otherwise, well, e Elon Musk just announced his star shield, probably all heard about that one. And one of his big selling points was we've suffered cyber attacks from Russia, we've survived them, we can do that for you. I think there's something there also where we can look at a good number of people involved in the space startup industry who are talking about distributive satellite platforms or the use of processing of the data and imagery in collective fashions um, using, I'm just going to say it, blockchain technology. You guys all know how I feel about blockchain. <laughs> uh, using blockchain technology to help us all share and cooperate in a distributive manner. I think there's also going to be more attention played on how that can be a part of space infrastructure resilience, because obviously if one of us can be hacked, then we can all be hacked. And when these satellites and these data is tied to human lives, it, it becomes essential <laughs> that we have these types of redundancies and resiliencies. 
Yeah, and maybe I'll give a, a different answer, which is, you know, there's a different type of resiliency uh, besides, you know, cyber and software, which is hardware architecture. So, you know, I've written a series of reports on Leo broadband constellations going back to 2015. And as the financial guy, you know, it's really hard to pencil a return on equity uh, on these types of investments. They're huge $10 billion uh, constellations where you have to constantly replace them and you have to scale. And and yet, um, I think what we've seen is there, there certainly uh, is a case that can be made uh, in, in these types of national security environments where having a highly resilient constellation makes sense. And, you know, one big outcome, I would argue, of, uh, you know, this conflict is in Europe. So uh, prior to the war, the Europeans um, really had been been talking about building a European broadband constellation, and there really wasn't a purpose for it per se, other than they didn't want you know the United States to to just dominate this niche of the market. But you know you look at the uh, you know post uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, and suddenly there's a compelling reason why you do want to have. Uh, a resilient constellation, and lo and behold, I think they've committed, you know, an initial 2.4 billion uh, towards building what they now call the Iris Two system. And whereas I would have told you two years ago, ain't going to happen, it's going to happen. And actually, uh, had a funny story I wanted to relate because you, you you mentioned uh, Laura about uh, the Earth observation, and I, I won't won't name the school or the professor, but when you talk about the uh, idea of you know, real-time visibility of things on the battlefield. I uh, was doing a, a parent's day at my my daughter's school. They were having a class on, on warfare tactics. And the professor, who was sort of a longtime academic guy, was giving this discussion around, you know, camouflage. And, you know, if you detect camouflage and you actually attack, then you, the aggressor, give away the fact that, you know, you have discovered you know, the other party's camouflage techniques, and there's all sorts of, you know, strategy around how you do this. And as I was sitting there in the class, I thought to myself, if I raise my hand, my daughter will kill me, so I won't say it. But that was really, I mean, that discussion he was giving was obsolete, because we don't live in a world where the national reconnaissance is the only game in town. And, you know, you can hide things for half a day, uh, I actually went back after the class and I totaled up the number of commercial Earth observation satellites on orbit, and I think it was 475. And so there is no hiding. And, and even, you know, the Russian tank driver, you know, uh, unlike the professor, could tell you, you know, when he pulls into the tree line, he's got somewhere between maybe a half an hour to two hours before a precision round comes down on him. So I think there's some very fundamental things about the way it'll change the nature of warfare. Um, camouflage is gone. Uh, mobility is it. And I don't want to stray too far just yet, even um, from Earth observation. I'd like to just sort of take a look at Maxar with you, Chris. Why did Maxar agree to be acquired by Advent International for $6.4 You know, what's the story here? Mm, well, I... I... So I think there had been speculation for a very long time uh, around Maxar as a potential acquisition candidate. They are, you know, have been uh, the dominant player in that market uh, with a very unique position, you know, as a, the key supplier to, uh, you know, the, the intelligence agencies for commercial imaging capabilities. 
They're also a little bit of an oddity in terms of a a public company in that they had two pieces of the business, you know, a earth intelligence, optical imagery business paired with a geo satellite manufacturing business. And those two pieces don't really fit together well. So uh, when you look at it in that context, folks like private equity like to break up assets and maximize the value. Um, there were also uh, strategic investors um, that might have been interested in bringing in that capability uh, of the imagery and their ability to do a lot more of the downstream analytics or using their channel and their partners. Um, so I don't think it was necessarily a, a huge surprise that this might have happened. Um, they were also heavily levered uh, on the balance sheet, and that had really restricted their ability to make investments internally. Uh, and it, it's interesting to note that right in the press release on the acquisition, the uh, you know Advent announced that you know this is not a, a cut the cost sort of strategy for them. It's an invest in the business, and they said in the press release, you know the two satellites, uh, Legion and Seven and Eight, that were you know, they were buying long lead items, but hadn't committed to them. Advent pulled the trigger. We're fully funding those satellites and they're, they're investing for growth. The next couple of questions are geared towards the economy. So George, you're in the spotlight here as you are the economist on the line. What have been the effects of the West essentially kicking Russia out of its space market and economy? I think the first thing that we should look at is the way it has made everyone think about space supply chains, uh, because not only did we have a partner uh, <laughs> removed from the space ecosystem, essentially, but we also have to think about its blowback on the supply chains of many space parts um, and, quite frankly, programming goods and services that we were previously getting from both both Russia and now um, you know, otherwise busy defending themselves, uh, Ukrainians. And so with that in mind, it's brought up conversations within the space industry about the need to either onshore or nearshore. Um, now, when we talk about onshoring, that's the opposite of offshoring, which has, of course, been the trend in the U.S. for years. Um, when we talk about nearshoring, which isn't always given as much attention as it should, I think that ties nicely in with what I hope are some of the good conversations uh, going on down there at Southern Command this week uh, with with U.S. Space Command and our eleven you know partnered Western Hemisphere nations in Central and Southern America? Um, they're meeting right now and discussing ways that they're going to be cooperating. I can only guess, and I hope I'm right, that they're having conversations about how they can participate in the space industry supply chain and how they can participate in the space economy through closer partnerships. Um, not just because of their know-how and abilities, but also because of their proximity and the advantages that proximity will provide. Um, the next big one besides the supply chain, I would mention, that has to be a consideration, is the ISS. Um, with the announcement of you know, the strong considerations to leave, oh, we're leaving, well, maybe we'll stay, oh, we're leaving, and all that back and forth, we have to imagine what the ISS will look like with the very real potential of Russia not being a partner. What that would mean is that NASA would require bigger budget and bigger support to maintain the ISS by itself until there is another option provided to it or until there are commercial options that NASA could rent space from. Uh, much like NASA now rents space for transportation, it could rent space 
on a commercial space station. But again, NASA will need additional funding to support that potential inevitability of not having Russia as a major partner on the ISS. And that has ripple effects on the entire space industrial base because of how the space industrial base relies on the ISS as a platform of research and discovery and testing and proofing, which it could potentially lose or lose as much access to if NASA isn't given the ability to meet all of the potential ISS obligations we need to should Russia pull out. Um, and perhaps Russia now still having the Soyuz need to go someplace ends up going to the now active Chinese space station. So there's a lot there, but I think that's probably the most fascinating part of all this from a, from a space perspective, what it means for the space industry five or 10 years from now. Let's just dive though into you know what you were talking about specifically the launch sector, which in 2021 was valued at roughly 12 and a half billion dollars, right? I mean this has had knock-on effects through to OneWeb. Uh, I mean they lost, I believe, their satellite. It's had ripple effects throughout, but. Perhaps maybe the blowback is, I mean, a lot of people have said, gosh, you know, there's been so much investment in launch companies and that maybe too many launch companies have been founded. But with Russia basically exiting the Western market, maybe there's enough room for all these new launch companies? Uh, so as an economist who believes in supply and demand, I do not think there's room for all these launch companies. Um, I <laughs> I, I was think, just, you know, just thinking out loud there, but you know, I mean, Russia's a big player, and there are a lot they of are, small they are. launch companies, right? Yes, so. and and I, right, and I and I regret that I will not have a trip to Kazakhstan anytime soon now, but um, but yeah, in terms of the number of launch companies, uh, we, we there's just way too many, right? We, I think we can all agree to that. No one maybe wants to nod, admit it, but th there's just way too many, and we've had a, a great deal of overinvestment. In, in launch, but there will be some winners now, particularly uh, US entity or US partner entity winners that otherwise would not have been should this conflict not have occurred and us no longer seeing Russia as a reliable launch partner. So there, there will be some winners that would otherwise not have been, but overall the, the shift in investment, I think still turns more toward uh, EO and also more toward how do we shore up our need for more space infrastructure, particularly when it comes to space-based platforms like commercial space stations. And if you guys want to actually, though, jump in on this, I mean, Russia being quite a large, you know, launch supplier, it's yeah, kind of I, exited so, the stage. So yeah, I'll, I'll jump in because, I mean, when you look at Russia and their role in the space industry, they really are one-dimensional. They're good at one thing, which is launch and propulsion. I mean, they suck at building satellites. They clearly suck at weapon systems, we're finding out. Um, but they're good at propulsion. And and today, I mean, you know, you look at things like uh, the RD-180 and, you know, it's still people trying to meet the performance of something that was designed by the Soviets, you know, back in the 70s. So the fact that they are shooting themselves in the foot and extracting the one part of their economy where they can actually, you know, create you know, currency reserves and and foreign sales, um, you know, sorry, but, uh, you know, that business is never coming back, I would argue, uh, because there are lots of good startup companies. And I agree with George, we don't need 100 new launch up launch companies, maybe, you know, no five or seven, you know, new ones. 
uh, in that ballpark. I heard somebody say 30. I, I just can't make the numbers work there, um, especially if you have SpaceX's Starship flying, because that's going to move a lot of volume. But, you know, there are various, well, I mean, here's another aspect of Russia. I kind of penciled the numbers from 2021. 25% of all launches that happen in the world came out of Russia. And what that means is spaceports. And spaceports are dear. We only have two in the United States that account for 99% of all launches that have gone out of the U.S. Um, give the folks down in, in Cape Canaveral, the Delta 45, I forget what they renamed themselves. Um, years ago, they were talking about, well, we hope we can launch 50 times a year. Uh, I just saw them quoted, uh, they're, they're aiming for hundreds of times a year. But there's physical limitations. And I live in Florida. There's these things called hurricanes that come through every now and then. And it is a really critical infrastructure. So who's a winner? You know, it, it's the Australians, you know, which are, are building some launch sites. You've got them going up in Europe, uh, both in the UK and up in Scandinavia, uh, potentially Brazil, you know, with Alencontra. Hope I pronounced that right. Um, and uh, so there's some physical infrastructure uh, and I'd be interested to hear Rich's perspective, having spent time in both Ukraine and Russia. Russia's a big loser here. Ha, they deserve it. I do feel bad for the Ukrainians because this was an area where they had a lot of strength. So you look at some of the losses that they've had, you know, things like uh, Yuzhnoya, right, was the, the largest supplier of, uh, you know, external sales. They were doing the first stage for Northrop Grumman's Antares, and that business is gone. You know, Northrop is now moving over to Firefly as a supplier. For the Russians, they kind of dominated electric propulsion historically with FACL. Uh, OneWeb was using it on their satellites, and they've now switched out to, uh, I know, Busick and perhaps a second supplier. So it's been a huge win for Western companies that are seeing you know, the downstream demand that's coming out of the loss of both Russian and Ukrainian suppliers. And I'd like to think there's a way that that we can work Ukraine back into the supply chains uh, because there's a lot of capability and a lot of engineering talent there, uh, but there's going to be a lot of infrastructure that's got to be rebuilt. Yeah, there's been a lot of effects. It's hard to know where to shake the stick at, uh, at Russia getting knocked out. The, the, the one that most interested me, I think it was two years ago, was uh, Roscosmos was talking about, well, not, not calling it that, but they were going to copy the Falcon 9 uh, with their Amora rocket. Uh, it was going to be launching out of... Uh, Vastachny. Uh, thank you. Uh, that one I can pronounce. Yeah. Well, well, it literally means east. Uh, yes. And they wanted to have their Amora be launching out of there. And you know, where are they going to get the money to develop it? Now? It was probably a pipe dream to begin with. But now it's an unfunded pipe dream. And then, and if uh, I'm not mistaken, that particular location has also been under heavy investigation. Mm-hmm. Or yeah, it's the guy major... with the diamond-studded Cadillac. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, like exactly. literally, you can see the pictures. Google it. It's pretty yeah. cool. <laughs> it's also a silly place to have uh, a launch site. I think, I and mean, it's 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 landbound, and you're dropping rocket parts all over the place every time you launch. I think that's the other reason to to kind of chime in on what Chris and Rich are talking about here is the the spaceports and how other spaceports can be winners. And I don't think it's uh, just potentially the Australians winning. I think it's also some of the spaceports here in the U.S. You know, we've got I believe it's thirteen now. Now one of those might be pending, but you know, thirteen uh, FAA approved 
spaceports. Um, out of those, you know, right down the street from me, you know, the Virginia spaceport, you know, Wallop Island. I mean, they they've been launching more recently than they they ever had before, and also supporting more than they ever have before. So, and you know, they could Lab be a potential. Just sent one up. Yep, exactly. and, and Rocket Lab said that's right, right, that's right. And Rocket Lab said, "Hey, we're going to be you know using the Virginia spaceport more." So you know things like that. That's that's a huge amount of successful economic development going into that area. Um, it's a it's a boom for them. And I think other spaceports here in the U.S., uh, both uh, the aspirational kind and the ones that are already approved, have some uh, some ground to be gained because again, you know, if we're not using the Cosmodrome. We're going to use something else. And that could very likely be some of these spaceports here in the U.S. Okay, gentlemen, we are running out of time. So we are hitting the final round. What advice do you have for investors or companies in what is essentially a less stable world compared to before the war? And I mean, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists said that they set the doomsday clock 90 seconds to midnight, mostly because of the Russia-Ukraine war. And Rich? Why don't you start? Okay. Uh, it's not particularly original, but my advice is, is always control what you can. You cannot predict the future. If you're going to be investing in space stocks, you've got to look for some kind of margin of safety. There's not a lot to be had right now. Uh, most of these companies are really hard to value. There's, there's no profits, of course. They're not supposed to be profits for, for years. And I'm, I'm speaking primarily about the, the space specs you now. Of course, uh, Boeing and, and Lockheed, they have better chances of making some money. And really among the large space companies, the only thing that I, I was looking left and right trying to prepare for this, trying to give you something that might be remotely investable, inable, Airbus was the, the closest one I could come to. About 21 times earnings, 21% projected growth rate in a, a modest dividend. It, it's the only thing that I'd really be considering at this point. Yeah, it's really interesting you mentioned Airbus because uh, Ariane 6. They've got the Ariane 6, but they're also pretty forward-looking too. They're actually helping to work on space-based solar power. I mean, they're investing their money into things that are, you know, decades in the future. Anyhow, uh, George, what do you see? Sure. So I'd, I'd make sure that we frame these in terms of our overall uh, expectations for the economy. So we are looking at a period that we have just experienced a higher than normal inflation. And with many people estimating that inflation will stay higher than normal for an extended period of time. Um, if you put that juxtapose, a 40% increase in my supply, you know, 40% of all the money ever created was created in the last couple of years. Um, so inflation of eight, 9% for three, four, five years, completely reasonable. That's how you soak up that 40% of the money you just created. Um, so with that in mind, you have to look at companies that can withstand that. When we look at companies in the larger defense aerospace sector and use those as reference points, we can then keep in mind the PE of some other companies that perhaps were toting themselves as technology companies. But when we really start to look at it, well, you're a space company too, and half of your market is still Uncle Sam. So maybe I should look at your PE the same way I looked at all those other guys. I think that's an appropriate thing to do right now. Uh, folks who are still flying very high on their valuations, look at them next to, as Rich said, look at them next to an Airbus, look at them next to a Boeing or Lockheed and say, you know what, maybe maybe that's just too rich for my blood and realize that these are uncertain times and, and take a little risk off the table. And Chris? 
you know, I love to have you have the last word. What Uh, do you think? I don't know what that lead in. Maybe I'll just buy gold bullion and a bomb shelter. But I mean, a bomb shelter in Florida means you're underwater. (laughs) So that's not a good idea. Maybe I buy land in Montana. I don't know. Um, So I'm not going to pick any stocks uh, per se. But uh, I guess what I will say is this is when I look at the space industry in aggregate and, and over the longer term, I think we've hit an inflection point in the industry. So, you know, for those of you old enough to remember, or if you like doing history lessons, you can go back and there was a space boom in the late 1990s. And literally everybody went bankrupt, right? From Iridium and Global Star to Laurel and you know, why, right? And you can point to the internet bubble, you can point to the fact that they were mostly corporate backed and the corporations pulled back. But I'll tell you, the answer was the fundamental problem of the space industry had not been resolved. And that was launch costs, right? Launch costs were 10 to $20,000 a kilogram. They've been that way for 50 years. And until SpaceX showed up on the scene and broke the launch oligopoly and drove down launch costs by an order of magnitude, hopefully two in the future, um, you have suddenly changed the economic attractiveness of space and the types of business models that you can close. So yeah, we went through a hype cycle, but it wasn't just the space industry. Biotech stocks got crushed and FinTech got crushed and crypto got crushed. So we're not as bad as crypto, I think, right? Uh, at least there's something real there and, and real value that we can extract. So look, I remain bullish in the long term. I guess if you're a long-term investor, you know you can pick through the rubble and there's some that are, are better than others. Um, there's one stock uh, that I won't mention that actually is trading at a negative enterprise value. And uh, for those of you, uh, I won't go into the full details, but that's kind of like something that they talk to you about in business school, where a company is, investors so uh, don't believe in it that they're just telling management, you know, shut it down and give us your cash back, right? That's what it's telling you. Um, so there are companies like that, but there's others that I think are are tremendously valuable and they're they're going to participate in the long-term growth of the space economy. Um, are we going to hit a pause or a stutter step? Maybe, uh, but I, I think the long-term trajectory here is set because you've removed the primary choke point for the industry. You know, participating as a commercially attractive, you know, sector that can generate economic returns. Today, you know, depending upon the sector, it's somewhere between twenty to eighty percent of revenues are coming from the government. And that's great. And those are the names you probably want to invest in today because there's a backstop, right? And the government's spending more money on space and defense stuff. But if this is really going to be an attractive, you know, long-term growth, you have to see these commercial economies populate and grow. And that, that's where I would look to invest uh, for the long-term. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Laura. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening. 